This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Oz Penguin, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 436 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is James Hibbard. He's an editor-at-large for Entertainment Weekly, and was previously the TV editor at The Hollywood Reporter. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, about the making of the HBO series Game of Thrones. The book draws on eight set visits and over 50 new interviews, as well as hundreds of articles that James wrote about Game of Thrones during its eight-year run. And now here's our interview with James Hibbard. All right, so we're here with James Hibbard. Welcome to the show. Great to be here, David. So how big of a fantasy and science fiction fan were you before Game of Thrones? Hmm. You know, I was, I've always kind of loved uh, uh, science fiction. I was less of a fantasy fan, though I did read uh, the Lord of the Rings books uh, as a kid. And I also loved the Chronicles of Amber series, which for some reason still hasn't been made uh, adapted. And that's one that, as a coincidentally, George R. R. Martin uh, loves as well. And, and, you know, he, he was good friends with, uh, uh, Roger Zelanzi. And, um, and, uh, you know, I also really particularly loved, uh, Dune, which is sort of both, you know, sci-fi and fantasy. And, and I, th- I think, you know, in recently re- rereading that it's, it's one of those books that you're like, this is also along with Lord of the Rings, uh, what seems to be a clear, um, influence uh on george i mean there's i mean if if i mean if you look at the uh the the hero's main storyline it's 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 almost like a male version of of daenerys Targaryen's storyline throughout the series yeah well and certainly the um the family's going into the dangerous situation and the father being killed and the kids sort of being scattered and hunted and everything totally right right and and uh, yeah, and 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 then you know the hero has to learn to to master. Uh, you know, you know, meets up with this desert tribe, and and then becomes the leader, and then ends up you know um, uh, co- conquering a, a a creature that that that's used to come back and uh, and re- you know reclaim the the family's birthright. So it's a it's an interesting uh, comparison you go through it like that. Yeah, that's so cool. You mentioned Amber too. That's my favorite series, and. Not no way, people. really. I've I've never, yeah, yeah, uh, I, yeah. I've, I haven't read those since I was a kid, but I, I love them. Yeah, no, I've read. I mean, um, uh, Guns of Avalon. I, I think I've read forty or fifty times. Uh, wow! And you know, I've read. There's a couple that I'm not so fond of: um, Courts of Chaos or Prince of Chaos. Um, but a lot of them I've read. Yeah, like ten, fifteen, twenty times or more. So yeah, wow. I just love those books so much. So, uh, but you haven't read them since you were, uh, like, how old did you say? Uh, I was probably a, a teenager and, and I, I think a big, you know, I think my, my, my favorite and, well, you know, at, you know, again, uh, because, uh, 
I hadn't really thought of this either. I was also a huge fan of all the C.S. Lewis books and also a huge fan of uh, Ray Bradbury. I mean, I, I devoured uh, everything that I could get my hands on from, from Bradbury. And, and, he, and he, he was one of those authors that that's really tough to adapt, but his, his writing is, is so beautiful and, and, and brilliant. And, you know, you read a short story like uh, A Sound of Thunder, you know, and just think that, you know, this guy wrote this on a typewriter at the UCLA library. That was a pay per use typewriter. And he's putting in like, like a dime for like 20 minutes. And, you know, and you don't have, you know, all these, you know, tools that we have on a laptop to revise and, 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 and rewrite and cut and paste. And you're just like, he's just like pounding it out. And then he creates something that's brilliant. Uh, it's, and he, he was just fantastic. Yeah, no, and I totally agree with you that um, Amber was a big influence on Song of Ice and Fire. Um, I've often, I mean, I've always seen Jamie Lannister as a very sort of Corwin. Oh wow, yeah, yeah, and 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 they even had like you know each character had their own colors too, like like the houses of uh, of in in Thrones had their own colors. Yeah, and there's there's little references to it too. I don't know if you ever know, if you look through the. Um, like the houses, the the list of characters at the end. One of the houses is House Rogers of Amberley, and the um, crest is I forget. It's like a unicorn or something. You know, it's something related to Amber. Oh, I know. I never noticed that. That's a, that's an awesome bit of detail. Yeah. So yeah, then, and and, and it's, it's funny. The Thrones producers did things like that too because they have they added in a um, house Mason uh, into the show, which is based on Craig Mason. Uh, the producer, the one that famously told them that uh, that the original pilot was was a total mess, <laughs> and um, and they made the sigil on it a coin, uh, you know, in order to imply that their friend was cheap. So that was, <laughs> kind, of, that was kind of a dig on them. So so that was like a private little little joke that I you know one one of those little details that I, I didn't put in the book because you know you know it's it's, it's a pretty you know niche thing, but uh, but yeah, it's interesting they both did that. Yeah. So then, tell tell us about reading um, Game of Thrones for the first time. What was that like for you? Um, I, I well, first thing, I, I couldn't believe that I had, I had never heard of this before, and you know, I literally spent a lot of it reading it in a park that I would go off and escape to uh, north of Los Angeles, uh, like under a tree, like Frodo, you know, <laughs> just like, I mean, l- literally just like, uh, you know, up against a tree in, in a shady park by myself on, on weekends when working at the Hollywood Reporter. And, and that was my favorite time of the week to, to escape the city and go up there and sit in this park and, and read these books. And I just remember thinking that, you know, I, I remember thinking that, that that this is absolutely impossible as a TV show. I remember thinking that there's no way that these guys could actually do this. And so, but if they could do it, it would be something that would change television. Um, you know, nobody had ever seen anything like this before. And it was so, and it broke so many of, of the tropes. So I figured either they would somehow pull this off and it would be this amazing hit show or at least, if not, not not a hit show, an extremely influential and and uh, an impactful show, or they were going to fall flat on their face out of the gate. That was going to be some amazing, you know, spectacular screw up. And but and as a reporter, either way, that's a good story. <laughs> so you know, e- either way, you know, I I wanted to to cover it. Yeah. So this was like 2010 or so. You were you were reading it. 
Let's see. No, this would be like uh, 2008 because I broke the news of the pilot in 2008 and then spoke to Dan David for a story. And they basically did, you know, to me, the same pitch that they did to HBO, except a very abbreviated version. And so I left the phone call going, huh, you know, because, yeah, and things I would write stories, deal of the day stories are, are, are the nuts and bolts of, of the trade publication. So I would do stories about things being ordered or canceled or renewed every single day, you know, you know, you know many stories per day. And, and then I'll just go about my business, but talking to them on that call, you know, they, they kind of sold me on it. Like, like, you know, like they sold HBO. So I was like, man, man, that does sound really cool. So that's what prompted me to go pick up the books. Yeah. I mean, cause I had been really into it. I mean, um, I actually first read, started reading it in 96. Um, Asimov's, oh, wow. You got there really early. Yeah. Asimov's magazine published like the Daenerys chapters or a bunch of them um, as a novella called um, Blood of the Dragon. So I read that and then I, I started reading the books in a little bit later in 2001. Um, and then by, two, you know, and then by 2003, I had read all the books like five times and I was spending like four hours a day on a Song of Ice and Fire message board and stuff like that. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. 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 So when, when I hit, um, uh, I remember, you know, I mean, I don't know what your favorite is among them, but I remember reading A Storm of Swords and just being flabbergasted at how good it was. I, I remember thinking, this is the most fun, and fun maybe might, might not be the right word, but this is the most fun I've ever had reading a book. Um, it, 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 and, and just, the, you know, the twists and turns and the way the, the, the characters developed uh, in that book, uh, you know, and, and you know, the, the, the combination of intimate and epic, which is what makes, you know, Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones so good. Um, you know, I, I thought it was just spectacular, uh, you know, you know, achievement in, in, in writing. Yeah. I sort of go back and forth on whether I think the first one or the third one is the best. I mean, I think the third one has, it has like the highest highs, but mm-hmm. then I feel it's also a little bit too padded. Whereas the, the first book is just like, you know, there's no, super tight. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so those, that's kind of the trade off between those two books. But yeah, like, yeah, Storm of Swords is just absolutely phenomenal. Like, j- just, and especially reading your book, you know, I was just reminded of how many, how many amazing things there are, you know, that, that the show drew from that one book. And it's just like, oh, and I, it's been a long, you know, I haven't read the books for, you know, since um, Dance with Dragons came out. So for like 10 years almost. Um, yeah. So it was, it was reminding me, like, oh, yeah, wow, there's so much good stuff in that book. Yeah, it's it, it's actually been quite a while since I've uh, read the books, and and so one of the things I'm looking forward to is sort of diving back and again, probably you know before uh, Winds of Winter comes out, presumably, presumably next year. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you never know. Um, it was actually funny because I just in preparation for this, I went back and listened to our last discussion of Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. which is actually was in was when uh, was in two thousand five, I guess, um, or no, sorry, sorry, it was in twenty fifteen, um, because uh, you know my friends and I all swore a pact that we weren't gonna watch the show after that point. We were gonna try to avoid spoilers and wait for the next book to come out. <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. That's that. That. that, 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 that so, so. So. How long did that last? Uh, I still haven't watched. I haven't watched the show past season four. You haven't watched the show past season four, right? Um, and so, and so, at that time, we were saying like, oh, if we can just hold out, you know, if we can just avoid dodge spoilers for nine months or a year, you know, by that point, maybe the next book will come out, and then you know, we'll have at least avoided spoilers for that book. You know, little did we know. 
Um, but yeah, so it, I just saw that your book, your book came out and, and I felt like I've been spoiled on everything at this point. I mean, I didn't yeah, I was about know. to say, I mean, I mean, my, my book is, is almost certainly not the best way to be spoiled on, 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 you know, seasons five through eight. Well, see, um, I actually disagree. I think, well, I, cause I'm, I'm really, I'm much more of a book person than a TV person. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of like, well, if I read this, it's like, at least I'm getting it from a book. You know, I have the mm-hmm. experience of reading, you know, finding out these twists from a book rather than from a TV show. So right. I actually loved it. I thought it was a great, at least for me, it was the perfect way to, uh, you know, sort of dive back into the world. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine, you know, and, and not to stay too long in this, but I'm trying to imagine finishing season four and then just going, okay, that's it. <laughs> you know, yeah, because, you know, that season's so great, too. Uh, you know, so, you know, a lot of people, you know, think that that is, is, is the best season of Thrones and then just having the, the, the sort of willpower and discipline to no, I am not going to watch anymore in, until the books come out. So that's, that's pretty impressive. Well, yeah, well, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, well, the thing was I got, I watched up to the, I might've watched a little bit. I forget exactly when it was the season five, but the point where Barristan Salmi dies, um, mm-hmm. I was like, eh, I, I know what. I found that pretty underwhelming. Um, and so at that point I was kind of like, eh, I can, I can stop this. But really the, the part that took the willpower was not even so much that was just that for years, um, you know, I would be at parties or whatever and people would start talking about Game of Thrones and I'd have to say like, no spoilers, no spoilers. Then I'd have to <laughs> leave the room and, yes. and that, that yeah. was, the, that was the much more difficult part. Yeah. So, so, so you're, you're like me in, the, in that sense of that, that you don't like uh, spoilers, which, you know, coincidentally is what, helped me in terms of getting access to the show because I was on the set for, for season two. I found out about um, Jason Momoa coming back for a cameo as Cal Drogo. And the producers were like, you know, very worried because it's, Oh no, the reporter found that out. And at the time, and for, you know, for many years, obviously every reporter covering game of Thrones was trying to figure out the next spoiler, trying, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what were going to be the differences between the books and the show. And, Personally, as a viewer, I don't like to know spoilers. I like my my you know when uh, like one of my favorite shows of the past ten years, along with Game of Thrones, was Breaking Bad. Uh, you know, one of my best friends works at EW. He covers Breaking Bad, and he, he'd always want to talk to me about things. I'd be like, "No, do not tell me anything. I do <laughs> not want to know anything. Don't you dare tell me anything about Breaking Bad." So when it came to my coverage. I was always like, "Well, how can I sort of tease what's going to happen and talk about the production process?" You know. Um, without giving away anything that if I were reading the story that I would be like, Oh no, I wish I didn't know that, you know? So, and, and I think that's something that, um, that the producers appreciated and, you know, uh, you know, because that spoilers were, were, were so important to them in terms of keeping them out. So they're like, you know, w- you know, they can take criticism, but they don't, you know, just don't, you know, spoil it for other people. So you think if other reporters had found out the Jason Momoa thing, they would have run with it? I don't know. I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to speculate what um, others would have uh, done with it. But I, I think that just the fact that I wasn't sort of looking to spoil things. Um, I was more looking to cover things like after, um, you know, they happened. Like, like for instance, like uh, the Jason Momoa thing, you know, it, you know, ideally what I would have probably wanted to do, and I, and I don't remember what I actually ended up doing, you know, is, is have an interview with uh, Jason Momoa that ran the next day or, you know, uh, you know, about that cameo, you know, to me that that would be, 
the sort of cool thing to get not to, you know, prematurely tell people, Oh, this is, this is coming and spoil it from ahead of time. So, so, so it's not that I wouldn't want to cover the spoilery things. I'd want to heavily cover the spoilery things, but I'd want to cover them after they, they happen and talk about, you know, how that came about and, you know, you know, what it was like on set and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was watching the show and I, um, I was actually reviewing season two for wired and I was really not very thrilled with season two. And so a lot of my reviews were kind of snarky mm-hmm. and I would just wake up. I think it was, I forget if it was Monday morning or Sunday morning or something. And I, there would just be like hundreds and hundreds of angry comments. Um, <laughs> and do you, do you, do you read the comments? Well, I, back then I did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where I was going with this was that, you know, this, I, I, you know, after doing this for, uh, you know, this for the season or whatever, I, I had just gotten to the point where I, I no longer cared what anyone else's opinion was about anything. Um, it's kind of <laughs> continued to the present. Right. But, um, but what was that like? Did you have cover? Did you, did you run into that sort of real fan passion thing when you were covering the show? Um, yeah. And it's funny because I go back and forth because I like to think that I don't care, but I care <laughs> <laughs> because I, you know, I, I, I like to think that, that I am like immune and people just get mad about things sometimes. And, you know, it often doesn't have anything to, to do with you or it might not even have anything to do with the show. And, uh, you know, sometimes just people want to vent, you shouldn't take it personally. And, but, at the, but at the same time, you know, I tend to be, you know, a pretty sensitive guy. And so, you know, I try to not look because, you know, then I, you know, end up getting upset. So, 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 you know, I kind of go back and forth. I, I, I try and practice good, you know, self-health and, and, uh, and not invest too much in that. But sometimes I do get, um, there, you know, there, there was a passage in there where I forget whether it was David or Dan, but one of them talks about, uh, the experience of reading a comment and then you find yourself having an argument in your head with the person that wrote the comment, you know, about here, here's why you're wrong to think that and da da da. And you can never win that argument in your own head. And it basically takes over your mind. And, you know, for them as busy as they were and as much responsibilities as they had, as has made decisions that they had to do, they had to kind of disconnect from, from fandom because otherwise they would be constantly distracted and constantly having to weigh all these other points of view and having like these little internal battles when they, when, when someone says something that you disagree with. And, you know, I, I do think that's interesting that, that they felt like they had to either be, you know, especially you watch how showrunners interact with, with fans nowadays, you know, some are very interactive. They're like on Twitter, they're, they're replying to things. They're, they're going back and forth with people who criticize them and then others, you know, disconnect completely. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to see that. And I don't, you know, as part of my job, I have to be on uh, Twitter and, and, and engage to, to some extent, but I often debate with myself about how much is, is the right amount. Yeah. Yeah. I really hope they never read any of my reviews. If they did, I apologize. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I wrote, uh, you know, recaps of every single episode of Game of Thrones and I was made fun of every single episode of Game of Thrones. So I, I, I was pretty snarky myself and I would, I would frequently, you know, hit publish on something. I'm like, well, you know, that's the last time I'm ever going back to the set, you know? <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, and, and I also covered the, you know, the various controversies with the show along the way. I, you know, I, I do think one thing, that I, you know, I don't do is, is I don't tend to like, I, I, I don't tend to take cheap shots. I don't think. And, and I don't, um, 
make assumptions about why somebody did something unless I know why they did something. It's in other words, I don't go, I don't go from, you know, this was a bad decision to this was a bad decision that they clearly did because they were thinking this or, or wanted this or wanted that when I don't know. And, and I think that just comes from just, you know, being a reporter all my life is that, you know, you know, the fewer assumptions you can make, um, you know, the better off you are and the more accurate what you're doing is going to be. Yeah. Well, and reading your book really gave me a whole new perspective. I mean, I have a, a, a much greater um, respect and appreciation and affection for them having read your book and just oh, that's interesting. Oh. all the, you know, all the pressures they were under and all the you know sort of long shots that they took and all the things that went wrong with the weather and finance and studio pressure and all this kind of stuff that, um, you know, cause, cause I would watch, the, you know, my big, really my big complaint with the show was that I felt like there were all these amazing scenes in the book that either got cut out or were done in a really perfunctory way. And then there was all this screen time devoted to what I would consider just filler where there's just like two random characters talking about right. nothing right. particularly important. And so your book really gave me a lot more appreciation for why those kinds of decisions were made. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and and that's one thing that I was trying to do throughout the book is is you know you might like something you might not like something but here's why you know you know why certain decisions were made and and why you know people you know you know did what they did and what the thinking was behind it you know uh, and and that's no more true than anything than with you know not not to jump ahead but you know, the final season just because uh, that's so divisive and uh, you know I spent like six chapters. Uh, touching on it, you know, to one aspect for, or, or another, and, and and the idea was um, to, to 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 try and put you there, and so you you understand why decisions were made, and you have a feel for what it was like to go through it. And my thought is is that I was trying to write it so that it can all either play out like the movie, like watching the movie Titanic, or like watching the movie <laughs> uh, Rudy you know, depending on your point of view about the final season. So, you know, as you go through it, that this is either a triumph or, or it's a disaster, but let, you know, I was very trying much, you know, not to, to, to kind of put, put, put a thumb on the scale and, and let the, let the, uh, the, the, the reader decide, you know, how they felt about everything as it went along. Yeah, well, well, it's interesting because, as I said, I haven't actually watched the end of the show, but just sort of the narrative that got filtered down to me, even trying to avoid spoilers, was like, oh, Danny turns evil for no reason and destroys King's Landing, and mm -hmm. it's like, makes no sense, and everybody hates it. And so then, um, reading your book, I was kind of like, oh, actually, the way you explain it, and you know, the way you just tell the story, and all the um, people involved in the show explain it, I was like, this actually sounds really cool. It made me actually want to go and watch it. Um, so this is why I say, like, it actually might be good for at least you know a certain kind of person to to read your book to get the story from your book. Yeah, and that's it's sort of like in some ways the way you're experiencing it, reading the book first. And then potentially watching the show is sort of the way I experienced it because I was on set and I was told what happened. I found out what happened and I was also asking them questions and finding out the reasons for everything being done. So I first heard, you know, what happened and, and the logic for it and then saw the result more than a year later. 
so it's like it already was kind of clear and made sense in my head. And then people had the reactions they did. I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, did what they said that made sense to me conceptually not, you know, play dramatically, or at least not play dramatically for clearly at least a percentage of the audience. Um, so I'll, I'll be curious to hear what you think when you, when, yeah. when you watch it, if, if it connects as well as it does uh, intellectually in terms of what the, the plan was. Yeah, but so you're in the camp that it, it, when you actually watch the show, it worked for you dramatically? Uh, I, oh, I, I, I stay out of the camps. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I stay out of the camps. And, and, and that is a dodge. It's, it's more just, you know, I think the average fan has a much clearer sense of how it played than I do because they watched it correctly. They watched it, you know, relaxed and enjoying it and not knowing what was going to happen. I came into it, you know, again, having known everything and I'm also have my laptop open in front of me. I didn't see the episodes in advance. I'm frantically taking notes for my recap and preparing to post my postmortems. So the way I watch it was all screwed up because I was in the middle of working through it. So it's, it's like really hard for me to be like, to put on a TV critic hat. And, and thankfully that's, that's not my role anyway. You know, if, if, if there's a battle over, you know, whether the final season worked or not, and there's two and there's people warring over it, I'm more off to the side taking notes and, and, uh, and, and reporting on what's going on. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay out of uh, the sword swinging by, by myself and, and just kind of let people decide on their own what they think. So what was the process of getting this book published? Like, did you, did you know that there would be a demand for it or like how, how did you go about approaching publishers or whatever? Um, a literary agent approached me during the final season while it was airing. And at that time I was ready to be done. I was like, I'm so sick of writing about game of Thrones, man. <laughs> I, I can't do any more game of Thrones this stories. Is, this agent is someone you had not talked to. No, before. no, it was total cold call. Yeah. And, and at first I was like, am I even going to take this call? I'm not even, you know, I'm really busy. I got, you know, game of Thrones stuff to write. And he proposed the idea of doing it as an oral history. And, I was like, okay, that's interesting because that was like the one way that I always kind of thought if I were to ever do something that that's the format I would do it in. And then I started thinking about, you know, I've been covering the show for 10 years and uh, there's all these stories I've done, hundreds of stories, and they're all very piecemeal, all very specific. It's about a scene. It's about an actor. It's about uh, a season preview. There's nothing that's been, you know, that connected the whole thing, that told the whole thing. And plus... I increased my amount of Game of Thrones coverage every season. I spent more, and I was allowed to spend more and more time on the sets as the seasons went on because EW would invest more in, in terms of you know sending me over there. Um, so my early season coverage was really slim uh, compared to what it became later. So there was an opportunity there to uh, things like you know what were those early meetings like? You know what was it like when the showrunners met George and then they pitched it to the network and then they did this pilot that didn't work. And then they're doing the first season that was all chaotic. And what was it like trying to pull off the first battle? Plus there's all these controversies along the way that I would ask about at the time. And nobody wanted to talk about on the record, like, you know, the, the, the whole Dorn arc, for instance, was, was one thing that, or like Lady Stoneheart and that sort of thing. So it, I knew there was an opportunity to circle back on some of the controversies and see if people would open up more now that the show is over. And, and, and they did. So 
you know, my big guiding goal with this was wasn't uh, you know, was was basically just to write a book that was entertaining that people liked that really gave people a sense of, of what it was like on the show. Um, you know, I didn't want it to be like in like a, a production encyclopedia. You know, a lot of making of stuff is, is very technical in terms of the presentation. I wanted to focus. You know, there's thousands of people who worked on Thrones, and I decided to focus mainly on writers and actors and directors. So the the the, the writing, the performances, and the staging of of the scenes. And you know, even that ended up taking the book from under 300 pages, like it was originally assigned to 450 pages. <laughs> so the whole thing just blew up to, you know, ended up being like 50% longer than it was originally planned for. Yeah. And I mean, I, um, the thing I was most, I mean, I agree. It's, it's really a page turner. It's a dramatic story just in its own right. And the, I mean, the, the thing that sort of drew me to it is I was just curious mostly about what George R. Martin what insights he would have about the story and, you know, what his reaction to the show was and everything like that. And so there were some things, you know, I, I hadn't even heard that, that that really jumped out at me. I mean, like this thing about uh, a fan trying to cut off his hair. That yeah. was crazy. Yeah. It, it, it's been fun since the book was published and watching the media coverage as different things keep being found and people are like, Oh, Hey, what about this? And it's like, I was wondering when, when somebody would, would zero in on that. And that's like one of those things where I've been like waiting for, for a headline to pop up somewhere <laughs> about, about the time, like an obsessed fan tried to cut off George R. R. Martin's hair. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, yeah. There's, I, an oral, the backbone of an oral history are the quotes. I'm, I'm very happy with the quotes that are in there. And that was the other thing is that I really wanted to get largely new material because so much had been written about Thrones, you know, you know, by me and, and a lot of other great reporters at other publications. And I just really wanted to try and get as much new as possible, but at the same time to dip into my archive of previously published quotes when necessary, because obviously I had covered many of the main things along the way that you, that you don't want to leave out like uh, the red wedding or, 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 or whatnot. So, so yeah. And in terms of George, I think he was my favorite interview for the book. Uh, you know, we talked for like hours at his favorite restaurant in Santa Fe and uh, he was really candid. He was like, when you read his quotes, you're never quite sure which direction he's going to go on something because there are things that he's, that he really praises about the show and there's things that he's very critical about the show and the journey for him in this is very emotionally complex. And he's, and, and he's pretty open about that. You, you can sort of feel that, you know, complexity um, as, as he goes on. So uh, I, I was, you know, of all the things in the book, I was most happy with um, you know, the interview that I had with George. Also, the thing I didn't realize is he says that, you know, one of his favorite things to do has always been to just spend all day at the bookstore just browsing through all the books and that he can't do that anymore because the show has made him so recognizable that a crowd gathers around him if he goes to the bookstore. Yeah, and I don't know if I put the entirety of that in there, but I, I think I actually cut out the rest of it and where he, he talks about how, you know, if he asks they will keep the bookstore open for him or open it early or keep it open after closing. But then he's walking around and like the employees are, are kind of there and it's him. And it's kind of awkward. And they're like, well, you know, if it's after closing, they're like, they have to wait for him to go, go home and he feels bad. So, you know, you know, there's, there's like no non awkward way to do it. 
um, you know, interestingly, he now has a bookstore in in uh, in Santa Fe. So, so I, I you know, you know, that's uh, sort of time enough at last, you know, with the the Twilight Zone, yeah. you know, ending. You know, he he has his own place now. Well, see, the thing, my idea for him, if if George, if you're listening, is what you should do is like shave your head and shave off your beard and just get super super buff. And then, <laughs> like no one would recognize him. And then also, uh, then people couldn't cut his hair off. Right. So it'd kind of be kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. I've, I've recently become conscious of, the, of how many people who are popular creatives that have signature looks like men who have signature looks. Um, and I think it was, uh, you know, I think it was interviewing Dave Filoni from, from uh, Star Wars, um, Mandalorian. He always has something with a wolf on it. And it made, he made me think, he reminded me a little bit of Robert Rodriguez, he, who always kind of has his own signature look. And I thought of George R. R. Martin. I'm like, man, am I really boring? I don't have, <laughs> have like a signature look. You know, is, 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 is there something that I should try and cultivate to make myself more interesting? <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, George uh, has, has a very distinctive look and, and, and that can be rough for him sometimes because whenever he's out, he gets noticed immediately. Yeah. So what has been the experience um, with the book coming out? Are you getting... Uh, reviews and stuff and um, how are people do pe- are people getting becoming more sympathetic to the showrunners uh, after reading your book um, so far I've been surprised how few reviews there have been because I think what the the tactic most publications are taking is they get this book and they're like let's find stuff in here to do a story on it instead of reviewing it and as a you know person who works for EW, that's probably what I would do too. You know, know, I'd probably read through it, you know, find something that, that would make a good headline and I'd probably do a story on that. So, um, but, uh, the reactions I've been hearing have been really positive and, you know, I love hearing things like, Oh, I finished it in two days. Um, even one person who complained about something, uh, they complained about something midday Tuesday and it was something I realized, I'm like, wait, what are you complaining about something from chapter 16? That means you read 16 chapters in an afternoon. So, you know, so that, you know, you, you, you must be, you know, really liking it then. Um, uh, you know, one, one, one review said that I, that, uh, was, was like really positive, but they noted, oh, you know, the book wasn't very interested in in the controversies. I'm like, I'm totally interested in the controversies. <laughs> you know, I, I spend an entire chapter on Sansa Stark's uh, wedding night and, you know, you know, six on the final season. Uh, I've, I've always been hugely uh, interested in, in all the controversies. I, I, th- I think one thing that I was worried about that doesn't seem to be the case so far in terms of the reaction, but, you know, maybe, you know, some reviews will, will, will prove that wrong is, is I was worried people, yeah, I, f- I feel like there's a certain percentage of people that have kind of their knives out for Thrones uh, since it ended, and I was concerned that some would would feel like um, like if, if if they read uh, the reaction of the writers to something, and then they're just like, oh, well, this book is terrible because because I don't like what you know this person said about this or that. And there was a sort of a shoot the messenger thing, which which is which is a risk you sort of take with oral histories, because for me. As, as, as a reporter on it, it's, you know, my goal is to get people to open up and talk about the show and open up and talk about, you know, these sensitive, you know, things that, that happened along the way. 
and the various controversies. And to me, getting that reaction and, you know, and getting that quote and getting that explanation, that's the goal. And then I just you know put it there and I'm not about to jump in and tell the reader how they should feel about it or, or well, here's what I think about what this person just said, you know, uh, you know, that's, that, that's not the format. And, uh, you know, I, I want everyone, you know, there's, there, there's a little great line there from, from Maisie Williams, uh, who said this when she was like 16, 17. And it's basically something like, um, I, you know, I think everyone has the right to be upset by whatever they're upset by. And, and I, I think that's spot on. And, you know, I would never want to tell somebody that they should be upset or shouldn't be upset for that matter about whatever they read. Well, I mean, one in terms of the controversies, one line that jumped out at me is there's this HBO executive who says something like Dave and Dan are not the kind of people who would ever put anything in just to titillate the audience. Mm-hmm. And that seems just <laughs> completely untrue. I mean, from my point of view, I mean... <laughs> Like it just even boggles my mind that someone would, I mean, it just seems like there's like so much stuff in there that's only there to titillate the audience, but I don't know what your impression of that was. It seems like in the early seasons in particular, that there is this, this awareness that they're on HBO and the format of premium cable networks in 2011, 2012 is we have to give the audience what they're not getting on pay cable and what they're not getting on broadcast, which means sex violence and nudity. Right. And so I, I do think that there's a certain uh, amount of incentive there to, to sort of fulfill that mandate of, you know, giving people something that, that they could only get by, by, by subscribing. Um, yeah, I, I I also got the sense that in, as the show went on in the later seasons, that things like the famous uh, sex position, you know, the the brothel scenes and so forth, where where you have you know nudity going on while you're receiving uh, exposition and you know at, at the same time, where it just seems like it's kind of there for. for 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 no reason other than to kind of spice up a scene, that that really tended to to fade away and not be there uh, uh, in the later seasons. Mm. Well, yeah, I'll have to, if I watch the later seasons, I'll have to see that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it doesn't seem like it had faded away in the part I watched. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, but going back to this idea that of, of the showrunners not having, you know, of having all sorts of limitations that they had to work around. I mean, mm. you know, at, at one point, they, I think they gave an interview where they said, oh, maybe for some of the big battles at the end of the show, we'll make them feature films, you know, and then we can have a much bigger budget and everything. And that idea was shot down by HBO within right. like half an hour or something. Yeah, that was a really intense experience because I was on the set for season three and we had had a conversation with the showrunners in a in one of the little bare bones uh, trailer caravans that they had on set. And I'll never, never forget it. We're sitting at one of those little cramped little Formica tables and, you know, and the wind is blowing outside and they're, and they're just, they start talking about how they're going to end the show with three movies. And as a reporter, my brain is exploding and trying to keep a straight face, you know, like, Oh, oh really? <laughs> and then they, they start talking about their plans for it and why they want to do it and why they felt it made sense. And, and it did make sense on some level because they were working, they were on a show with that. There was no way it could pull off what George had told them uh, at their, their summit meeting about what, 
he was planning for, for the end of the books, that there's just no way that they could do it. So they were looking at this as, well, how do we do that on our budget? We can't do anything anywhere close to that. The only way we could do it is in movies. So maybe the final season can, can basically be three movies instead. And then I was like very eager to, to post that soon because I had no idea where that was in, in the process and I didn't know when it might come out someplace else. And so I, you know, you know, called HBO for, for comment and uh, they, they uh, had a big reaction. And then there was a whole <laughs> summit meeting between HBO and the showrunners about it. And because, because, <laughs> and uh, HBO did not want to do that because they're not in the business of doing movies. They're not in the business of saying, okay, now that you've watched the show on our network for seven years, go to a movie theater to see how it ends. Um, but HBO shooting that down one of the most fascinating things about Thrones, and you talk about the hurdles that people who made it, you know, had to overcome is there's a quote in there from Harry Lloyd, uh, who played, uh, Viserys Targaryen that Game of Thrones had to become the biggest show in the world in order for them to make it. And that's right. Because the, in, you know, they, they sold it on the idea of this is going to be a small, you know, more intimate show, knowing that they had all these massive battles that they had to do, even in just the books that were published, let alone the ones they'd learn about later and the books that haven't been published. So the, in, the only way that they could make the show was to make it more popular every season and, and to make it become such a phenomenon and make it, you know, become so successful that HBO would have to give them the money that they would need to do the, you know, the next thing that they wanted to do. So it was, it was, it was such an incredible, you know, you know, feat for for them to pull that off and kind of really ballsy thing to do. Um, You know, you're, you're, you're really just kind of uh, on on a total high wire act uh, trying to do that. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of a shame that HBO shot down the movie theater idea because there was this thing I saw one time where um, they released two of the episodes in IMAX uh, yes. and went and saw it in New York on IMAX. It, and so it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it was the you know one of them was the the Battle at the Wall, and yeah. um, I watched that on my laptop, and I was like, yeah, this is pretty good, you know. But it was like seeing it on IMAX, so I was just like blown away. Like this is amazing, you know. Yeah. So it's just a completely different experience. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I got to go to a couple of the premieres, which all were also on big screens, and and I think that part that was actually something that that was influential to them because whenever they had seen it, um, what they did in, in a in a theater for for the premieres they would have, I mean, m- most TV shows wouldn't fill a movie screen and and have it feel like a movie, but theirs did. You, you when you see it on on the big screen, you see all this detail in the costumes and the, and the sets that you never, you would never even notice. Even, even on like a really great TV, you would never even notice. Um, so, you know, there's some, so Game of Thrones was kind of made for a level of presentation that people watching it at home weren't getting. And, you know, not, this is, this is what I was saying, you know, that's happening during, during this, this tour talking about the book where every once in a while I'll start talking about something. I'm like, damn it, I should put that in the book, <laughs> you know, because, because that's, it's, it's very true that, um, that was made, it was made in some ways made for, for the big screen. Yeah. Arguably what they did in the final season was basically like three movies. And that was also part of what people didn't like about it because the show had a very, 
TV-like pace for the first six seasons and then seemed to speed up a bit in the, in season seven and, and with, with, with season eight. And when the pace changed, it started to feel like, like a bit different and a bit like a different thing. And for a lot of fans, I, I feel like they, they, they felt like, no, I, I don't like this. I like the way it was before. And, um, yeah, it, you know, when, when you would see, scene after scene of a journey from A to B, not just have somebody, well, you know, they're here. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, they're, you know, they're, they're already at the other place. And I, and I think that that was part of the, the frustration with those final two seasons. But you think if it had gone to movie theaters, that that change of pace would have not been so jarring to people? Or would have seemed more natural? I think it would have more seemed like what you were seeing. I mean, here's, here's the thing. I think one thing that might have made a difference, and this is this is just a pet theory and could be totally stupid and wrong, but in the final season, there were uh, three episodes, three, three episodes or four episodes, that were uh, 80 minutes long. Um, so you had uh, these supersized episodes, and each one of them pretty much has a, uh, or, or actually three, three of them rather, ha- have a very distinctive, Three, three of the four have a very distinctive break in the middle where it's like the, the first half feels like one thing and the second half feels like a bit like a different thing. I always wondered if those three episodes had aired, aired over six weeks instead of three weeks, whether they would have been received a little differently because you would have had more time to process what happened in the first half. And then you'd have more time to look forward to what happened in, in the second half. And so that to whatever degree there was a certain amount of speeding up in terms of the storytelling would not have been noticed as much if they had been stretched out over more weeks, even if it had been the exact same amount of content. But, you know, again, that, that could be totally wrong. Yeah. Okay. So I was telling you that about how I was trying to avoid spoilers and it was just totally hopeless. No matter what I did, you know, they would be like, Oh, John came back to life would be in like a YouTube ad. I mean, it was just like, Mm -hmm. it was just, it was everywhere, you know? Yeah. Um, and so almost everything was spoiled, I felt like. And then like there was still, there were a couple of things in your book where I was like, oh, I didn't know that. But then actually I went back and listened to our um, previous discussions. And it's kind of like, oh, there's actually even having read your book, there's still like so many questions that I still don't know the answer to. So I'm just going to run some of these by you. You can tell me, don't tell me the answers, but tell me if any of these are answered in the show. But that just didn't make it into your book. Uh, so like who is cold hands slash what happened to Benjamin Stark? What's up with the horns to bring down the wall and control the dragons? Who is the prince that was promised? And who is Azor a high reborn? Uh, and what happened to Patchface when he drowned? I take it <laughs> none of that is in the show. Yeah, or... yeah I, I don't. Well, I mean, um, uh, Benjamin Stark. There's there there there's a bit of a button on that, but not entirely. But uh, there's 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 some of that, but not perhaps as much uh, as book readers would probably want. How about the prince who was promised? Because you you have this like they Dan and Dave played a prank on you. You said, yeah, yeah, yeah. They um, I asked them, you know, who was uh, the prince who was promised, and they said uh, you need to go ask Kit. And they're like, yeah, you know, you need to go ask Kit. He's you know, we told Kit he knows. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Kit has the answer. Okay. And then months later, interviewing Kit Harrington, he's just like. 
you know, basically what the hell are you talking about? He's like, they, he's like, they never told me that they never told me shit. They're, 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 they're putting you off on me. So, you know, so, um, this was I don't before know. the show I, ended or after the show ended? Uh, that, that was after the show ended. And so it's so, not in the show. It doesn't get answered, I guess. No, yeah. no, no, it, 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 it does not. You, you, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, it, I think it's one of those things that they're just letting, uh, fans like answer on their own. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the quotes I really liked is when you're talking to George R. R. Martin. And you're, I mean, actually, you ask everyone sort of what do you think the legacy of Game of Thrones is going to be? Mm-hmm. And he says that he hopes Game of Thrones will make fantasy just normal, adult fantasy normal on television. Right. And I was just curious as a, a professional entertainment reporter, what do you think of the prospects for that are? I think the prospects of that are excellent. I mean, you know, I mean, especially now that you have uh, the Witcher blowing up on, on, on Netflix. I mean, if, I mean, if, if there's any doubt before, uh, now that you have that, um, I, 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 I think the, the chances of that are, are very good. Are there, I mean, are there, uh, it's hard for me to think of a lot of other epic fantasy kind of things on TV. I mean, there's the wheel of time show yeah, coming so out. There's wheel of time. And of course, you know, um, there's the Lord uh, of the Rings. Show. Amazon's doing yeah. Lord of the Rings uh, for you know, half a billion dollars. <laughs> so, or, or, or so it's been reported. Um, and of course, you know, there's Thrones own, uh, prequel, you know, House of the Dragon, which which definitely sounds. Uh, you know, George is is very excited about that. Uh, he he's 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 very bullish on that. And Miguel Sapochnik, you know, one of co showrunners of House of the Dragon, is one of Thrones' best directors, and he did well. You know, someday you're going to see the Battle of the Bastards, and you will be impressed. <laughs> Let me put it that way. I, I at least I think you will be. So, are you bullish on it? Um, I'm more bullish on this than I was about the other prequel. The other one, I was like, ah, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure, you know, because it, it, it sounded like kind of similar in in not the right ways, and that you know more about uh, the, the 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 White Walkers and another long night. And it's like, ah, you know, I, I I don't I don't know if that's in thousands of years, thousands of years before the events in game of thrones you really want to go that far back um i i, I yeah so I, I wasn't really that big on that idea but uh but house of the dragon sounds sounds cool i mean targaryen civil war sounds and 300 years before sounds like it, it's going to be different but not so different that it'll be unrecognizable um and uh i i, I think it's definitely got a shot they filmed a pilot for the other one but it didn't go to series is that right yeah, yeah. People always ask me, well, don't you want to see the 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 unaired pilot that you know from Game of Thrones? It's like, no, I want to see the unaired pilot for 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 the other thing because because the yeah the Jane Goldman pilot, sorry, Naomi Watts, that thing's a total black box. I mean, you know, you know nobody's talking about that. So um, that uh, yeah, it, it filmed an entire pilot and then they scrapped it. And really, part of that just goes to show how tough this is to do, right? It's like, you know, e- even with having already done Game of Thrones and already done one show and seemingly kind of figured it out, if you start from, if you try and, you know, restart and recast and, and recapture that magic, there's there's a lot of ways that can go wrong. Yeah. So, okay, so say for the sake of argument, I don't have time to watch four seasons, four more seasons of Game of Thrones, and I just have time to watch, like, five episodes or something which okay. ones should i go ahead and watch 
Um, I would definitely watch uh, The Battle of the Bastards and The Winds of Winter, which are two Miguel Sapochnik-directed episodes uh, that uh, end season six. And uh, I think those, you know, are... I mean, there's a fair number of people that, that rank those as, as two of the best episodes of, of, of the show. I mean, they're, they're, they're really spectacular, um, and yet in different ways. I think they really capture the intimate and the epic um, uh, pretty well. So, I mean, those, those would be the, you know, I, I wouldn't throw five at you. I, I, would, I would say, you know, do those two and then, and then see if you still don't want to watch the rest of it. All right, cool. Yeah, I can definitely do two. Um, I guess just one maybe final thing I wanted to ask you is you live in Austin and uh, my girlfriend and I just moved to Austin recently. Oh, cool. I was just curious, is there any um, stuff once the COVID is over, hopefully, um, is there stuff in um, Austin for fantasy and science fiction fans and uh, commentators and stuff to, that I should check out? Um, there, you know, there's a game shop on South Lamar that has a open game night on Tuesdays where it's all board games. And, and I do like that. And there is a comic book store on, on, let's see, is it North Lamar or is it Burnett? I think it's on Burnett that, uh, my friend who is a huge comic book fan absolutely loves that. I can get you the name of afterward. Um, one of my favorite things in Austin is, uh, as an entertainment fan is uh, master pancake theater, which is basically like, like mystery science theater 3000, but live. And every weekend at the Alamo draft house, um, in downtown, they'll pick like, they won't pick like old B movies. They, they do like modern classics. Uh, they riff like, um, like back to the future and you know, Jurassic park and, you know, Terminator two and 50 shades of gray and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, their, their riffs are, are really fun comic events, but of course they're on hiatus right now, but, uh, hopefully we'll be back soon. Yeah. I mean, how do you find it being a entertainment reporter based in Austin compared to New York or LA or is there like, what are the pros and cons or, or whatever? I mean, the cons are, the, you know, there, there's a value to being able to go do business lunches in LA with uh, people in the industry. Um, so that's a con. Um, the advantages are just about everything else. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, you know, most people, you know, when I moved here about, um, I guess like, like, like seven years ago, I, I went to university of Texas at Austin then moved away and then, then came back. Um, so when I moved back here, uh, I, I was really worried because I was like, you know, is this going to work? Am I going to be able to, you know, be, uh, you know, get as many scoops. I mean, I'm going to be able, able to be as productive and everything else. And, and to, you know, it's my surprise. It, it worked out great. I mean, everybody, uh, you know, in LA likes Austin. So they, they don't, I, I was worried, like, you know, will people that, I, that I'm trying to get on the phone still return my calls if I'm in Austin. And, and the answer is yes, yes, they, you know, they, they will. So, um, yeah, it's and also everyone in LA eventually seems to come here anyway. I mean, it's it's like whether it's South by Southwest or ACL or ATX Television Festival or Moonlight Tower, you know, uh, or Moon Tower Comedy Festival, rather. Uh, it seems like everybody that I want to connect with in LA comes to Austin at some point in the year, so it all ends up kind of working out. Yeah, well, that sounds great. I'll definitely check out the those things, the comic book store and everything. 
Um, so yeah, so we're pretty much out of time. So I guess, do you have just any final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about? Let's see. No, no other projects. I, you know, I, uh, I hope if people check out the book that, that they like it. And, you know, if, you know, if they, they have any thoughts about it, they're, they're welcome to ping me on Twitter. I'm at, uh, at James Hibbard and, uh, also be, um, posting some outtakes from the book on ew.com in the coming months. So there's a lot of things that were just like near misses for inclusion. Um, so that I'll be you know, rolling out some of those um, in the months to come. Yeah, that's great. No, it's a, it's a terrific book, uh, really fun and exciting to read, even if you haven't seen the show, as I can testify from personal experience. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and again, the book, it's called Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon by James Hibbard. So James, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dave. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to James Hibbard for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.